Mac Power Users, episode 582, radio and podcasts and books, oh my, with Shelley Brisbane. Hello and welcome back to Mac Power Users. My name is Stephen Hackett. I'm joined as always by my friend and yours, Mr. David Sparks. Hey, Stephen. How are you today? I'm good, David. How are you? I'm doing good, man. I, uh, I'm looking forward to making a Mac Power Users episode. We got a, a friend on the show today that we haven't seen for a few years. Welcome back to the show, Shelley Brisbane. I'm glad to be back. Thanks for having me. It has been a long time. It's been too long, but you know, Shelly's very important. She's like on the radio, she's writing books. Here's a lady that's doing a lot of stuff, and uh, we always want to hear about her workflows. And um, uh, looking forward to getting you in the hot seat today, Shelly, so we can get some good details from you about how to get our work done faster. Sounds good. Before we get started, uh, this week we on more power users, Stephen and I are going to do a check-in on the Apple Watch, because I believe Stephen and I, we haven't talked about it yet, but we have very differing opinions, and uh, we need to air some things out. So we're <laughs> going to do that on more Power Users today. Yeah, it's a good uh, good mid-cycle you know, time to check in. Yeah, I have thoughts. I've been hearing some things you're saying, and I have concerns, oh, but we'll, we'll, we'll save it for more Power Users. Shelly, um, Tell us a little bit about yourself uh, uh, for folks that aren't familiar with you, and uh, let's uh, let's get started talking about your workflows. Sure thing. Well, you mentioned a little bit of it. I'm I'm kind of a multitasker. I can't do one thing at a time because I get nervous. Uh, so my day job is at a radio program called Texas Standard. We're a daily statewide public radio news show in Texas, and I manage the website and I also produce reported stories and segments for the show. But wait, there's more. I also make a couple of podcasts, including Parallel, right here on Relay FM. And I write books. Uh, most recently, uh, my, my book about iOS accessibility, iOS Access for All, is in its eighth edition for iOS 14. And so a lot of podcasting, a lot of writing, a lot of producing, and a, a lot of audio. That's basically me. Well, I mean, that book is, I think, one of the like the authorities on accessibility with the Apple's mobile computing devices. And I love that you keep it up because I know that Apple's always making changes. Yeah, it's a lot of work, but it is necessary to update it every year. And I feel like having created a firm foundation several years ago makes it easier to update each year than it otherwise would be. But my goal really is to be the comprehensive resource for accessibility information. There are a lot of little bits of it that you can get various places, but I want a hands-on resource that anybody with any interest in accessibility can pick up and, and find the thing that they're looking for. A good friend of mine was at a Stevie Wonder concert when Steve Jobs died. And um, he was telling me how like Stevie interrupted the concert to kind of mourn Steve Jobs because he felt like Apple was the first company that made technology available to, you know, people suffering, you know, he's blind, suffering from his disabilities. And, and it really, I was, it was, it really surprised me what, you know, how far ahead Apple seems to have been in that space, uh, at least over the last few years. It was funny because for a long time, Apple was not ahead and they kind of came in with a vengeance in 2009. I also don't think Stevie Wonder would tell you that he's suffering from disability. I think he would tell you that he is living his best life 
And, and Stevie has had a longtime relationship uh, with Apple. He's been in some of their advertising, but he also is very active in the accessibility tech community generally. In fact, I've seen him at accessibility tech conferences hanging out in the Google booth. That seems to be where his favorite place to be is. So I think Stevie is not just a a, a one manufacturer accessibility uh, a, a fan, fanatic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you know, it's funny. I have a funny Stevie Wonder story. I was at the NOM show in Anaheim one year, and a good friend of mine um, works w- with with Yamaha, and so I got to hang out in the Yamaha booth for a while, and there was this really great, crunchy-sounding keyboard there, and it just was great for funk, and I was, I was playing on it. I'm a, I'm a very average piano player, but he's like, hey, you like that piano? And he's like, I'm like, yeah. He says, yeah, that was Stevie Wonder's. And I'm like, holy, I, like, it's like I pulled my hands away as if like I had just been stung by a bee. It's like that <laughs> piano should never have my fingers touch it. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I have a Stevie Wonder story too, which the very short version of which uh, one year when I did encounter him at an assistive technology show, I was carrying around my uh, microphone and my field recorder because I was doing interviews on the show floor. And so uh, my my friends, thank, thankfully for me, uh, goaded me into going up to him and asking him a few questions, which he was extremely gracious to answer. And even when I said, well, I'll ask you a couple questions. And he looked at me and he said, make it three, which was so awesome. And then I recorded <laughs> him, except I didn't record it. No. Didn't get recorded. It's horrible. Oh, no. <laughs> but he was he was absolutely delightful. Yeah. I feel sort of left out. I don't have any Stevie Wonder stories, but. Well, I'm glad everyone else sorry. does. We we all have Stephen Hackett stories though. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a little less exciting. Like, and as a jazz fan, that guy has serious jazz chops. If you ever like take apart his music, but anyway, we're getting off the off the rails here already. Um, Shelley, what gear are you using these days to get your work done? So I have a couple of machines in my life. I have a 2015 21-inch iMac, which is my personal machine. I'm really looking forward to the day when Apple puts out those first M1 iMacs because I'm either going to be in line for that or some other uh, Mac to replace this one in my personal life. Uh, The radio station issued me a 2019 MacBook Pro, so a little pre-keyboard improvements. But since I use it in clamshell mode most of the time, it doesn't really bug me. And uh, it, it is very uh, well-suited to my needs. I also have a 12.9-inch iPad Pro, which I love, love, love. And we'll talk about it a little later, but it becomes involved in my on-air life on the radio. And I it's one of those things where when I got it, I thought I would use it and that I would love it. But I have have turned it. I have begun using it in ways that I never expected to. So those are the main machines. And then in my podcast studio, I have an old crotchety 2013 uh, 13-inch MacBook Pro whose only job is to record stuff. And I think the deal that uh, the Mac, that Mac and I have uh, made with one another is that if I leave him in the studio and let him just record things and don't ask anything else of him, he's not going to crash. And that seems to be working out. <laughs> is it, that's MacBook Pro retirement life, it sounds like. He got Pretty one much. job. He just lives in this dark closet. He records. He's got stickers. And, and as you can tell, I anthropomorphize my computers to some extent. So That's okay. Uh, totally fine. But the trick there is like, I mean, let's talk about that for a minute because people do have old Macs around that you can unipurpose that way. I think, you know, what are some best practices? The first one would be don't put software updates on it. I mean, have you, are you continuing to give it like the, the operating system updates or are you just kind of leaving it as is? I'm leaving it as is and I update apps, things I use, obviously audio stuff, audio hijack and Amadeus, which I use on that Mac and anything that, is directly related to recording 
I keep updated. The hard part is to remember to do those updates not right before you come in here to record a podcast when the computer wants to do them. But uh, yeah. yeah, I don't I don't give it any unnecessary updates. I'm long past the point of buying accessories for it. It served me well before it became the old computer, but but now, as you say, it's in in happy Mac ret- semi retirement. Well, you know, does the job right. You mentioned earlier that you want to get an M1 iMac. Um, I have a concern. I, I haven't talked to you about this yet, Stephen, but it's increasingly looking like the first iMacs coming out are going to be the smaller ones, and they're not going to release both the small one and the big one at the same time. I feel like we're heading towards a nerd crisis in the Apple community when Apple says, here's the new iMac. You can buy the small one. We'll get to the bigger one sometime later, but we're not going to tell you when. And everybody's going to lose their minds over whether they wait or buy. (laughs) Well, as a fan of the small iMac, I'm happy because we usually get left out in the cold. And remember that the last time iMacs were updated, the small ones got a very minuscule update that didn't make it worth buying them. And and I use a small iMac for a very specific reason, because I get lost in too big a screen. And the sort sure. of shorthand for somebody who doesn't have a visual impairment as I do might be, oh, well, don't you want the biggest screen possible? And that's true for some people. But for me, I like a screen that is a size that I can manage sitting two or three inches from it. And for me, that's I, what I would really like is a 24-inch iMac. I have some 24-inch external monitors, and those are kind of the best of all possible worlds for me. So the idea that you guys are going to have to wait while those of us who like the smaller iMacs uh, get them, it doesn't doesn't make me sad, I'm sorry to say. <laughs> it's kind of delightful for you, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is, I mean, actually. It's, your turn. <laughs> it's my, totally my turn. Well, also, it's an excuse to buy right away. It's like, you know, I have to test it. I have to take That's one right. for the team. Yeah. And, and the rumor is that that one is going to get updated to 24-inch. I mean, it's all that rumors at this point. That would be so great. I'd love yeah. that. Yeah. One thing that has uh, really bothered people about the iMac for a long time is that the small one tends to be less well optioned. You know, maybe you and it it's changed over the years, but at some point you could get a bigger SSD in the big one. Or now, currently, if you go and buy a 21 inch iMac, which I don't think anyone should, should do at this point, you know, the processors are a couple of generations old. Uh, how have you found the performance of that of that machine? surprisingly good. I have been uh, waiting for some time for there to be a deal-killing reason that just makes me have to go and get a new one. And and even though I run Adobe Audition and do multi-track on it, and I compare it to my MacBook Pro, which is considerably newer, it's actually worked better for me than I would have expected. I'm not doing a lot of effects in the audio processing I'm doing. I'm doing some EQ and stuff like that, but I'm not trying to render a whole bunch of tracks with, you know, noise reduction and stuff like that, which I understand can really kill the processor. Would I like a faster one? Of course I would. And I think the the expandability is is kind of the issue because I bought the mid-level 2015, late 2015 iMac, and you actually couldn't change out the drive in that one. I, In fact, I opened it up thinking, oh, well, I can replace it with an SSD, and you cannot. There is there is no option for that. And uh, that is that was very unfortunate news, especially since I went to all the trouble of opening it up, and I did not real apparently I did not read quite carefully enough. So that would be my... Uh, a guidance for people who want to upgrade a machine like that that requires a little bit of work to to upgrade, be absolutely sure that you know what you're going to find inside. 
Well, I heard that the new one is going to have a, a, a literal automobile hood on the back with a hinge, <laughs> and you just open it up. and That works for me. Yeah, no, actually, uh, they're not going to do that. It doesn't they're, seem right to me. Not. <laughs> it's not going to be like the Mac Pro where you just open the door and, you know, get in there and hot yeah. swap things. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like it, it. those days are over, and this new one is going to be even less upgradable than that one you're complaining about. <laughs> yeah, I would be unsurprised, but I'm going to hold on to those suction cups I have. You know, something that's been on my mind is Moore's Law. You know, what is that? Every 18 months, it was supposed to be the processors doubled in speed. And it was true back in the early days of computing. But that's just no longer true. When you think about a five-year-old computer, a five-year-old Mac, it's probably perfectly capable of running most of your modern software without a problem. And I think that that is going to be even more pronounced with the Apple Silicon Macs. When you look at, like, take an iPad. You know, if you take a five-year-old iPad, what is there that you can't do on it that you, you know, I mean, there's probably not very much that you're you're frozen out of with an older processor. And I can we declare Moore's Law dead at this point? I feel like computer processors are are relevant for a much longer time than they used to be. It's kind of like Moore's Law has a wall because up until you can, can't do something, you can do it. And so the iPad that I replaced that my mother had uh, last year was an iPad that could not be updated to iOS 14. But the new one she has will probably be good for four or five years. So it's it's really like use it until you absolutely cannot anymore. And you will find out uh, with incontrovertible evidence that, that, that it is time for that computer to go away. You can't You can't just sort of fudge it and go, well, I can use it for another year or so. Right. And I think that means when you're buying a machine like an iMac, if it means getting it now or wait, letting your budget have a little more room, doing things like memory and storage space are even more important because these machines last so long. You don't want to get in a situation where it still meets your needs performance wise, but you're just out of disk space all the time or you have a bunch of externals hanging off the back of it. I think it's it's critical to really make sure that you are not only specking for what you need today, but what you need, what you think you'll need, you know, three, four, five, six years down the road. Yeah. When I think of all the email I get from listeners, the problem is very rarely it's not fast enough anymore. The problem is almost always I'm tired of not having enough space on my SSD. Hence my attempt to upgrade my old iMac and hence my, uh, purchase of external solutions. But yeah, a bigger one would be on the top of my list of feature requirements for a new machine. Yeah. When we were at MacStock last year, uh, I watched Steven crack open somebody's iMac and replace a drive. And it was harrowing. I was thinking, man, I hope, I hope Steven gets his computer to work when it all goes back together. <laughs> would have been I was thinking the same thing too. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like on a lunch table. It was not, it was, it was the opposite of a clean room. You know, it was like, doing surgery in the field. I mean, it was crazy. Yeah, I've seen a couple of episodes of MASH. I know how it works. Yeah. <laughs> well, I've got a story about that because uh, years and years ago when I was doing sort of freelance desktop publishing and system admin stuff and helping people with their computers, uh, I got an SE30 to add memory to. Not a particularly challenging computer in this day and age by, by any stretch of the imagination to open up. If you've got a Torx wrench, you just get in there and you add the memory. But I'm also visually impaired, and I'm about two inches from everything that I look at or work on. And so I opened up this SE30, and uh, the person who I was helping just was casually making conversation or thought they were being casual and saying, so um, 
have you done this before? And I had, and it worked fine. The, that, those were the old ones with that did I forget were those the ones that had those big capacitors in them or are they um I don't know it's been Stephen so would remember that better than I I'm sure <laughs> there's been that's uh, probably before Stephen's time I mean you never worked <laughs> on an SC30 did you Stephen uh, no but I mean I've been in I've been in compact Macs but no. every generation of Mac has heartache in the hardware somewhere yeah it's inevitable um, Shelley you mentioned that you've got the big iPad. And you've got the laptop. Where do you draw the lines between those two? That's a really good question. I, for the day job particularly, I work almost exclusively on the Mac because the tools are better for what I do, especially because I'm use, doing a lot of writing, a lot of editing, a lot of moving text around, and I just have more keyboard shortcuts and, and things I can do in that regard. When I'm doing on-air work for the radio, I tend to use the iPad because it's something I can read off of. I mean, if I guess if I had to shorthand it, I would say, generally speaking, I write and edit and create on the Mac, and then I I read and consume on the iPad, which is not an unusual way of dividing things. When I'm working on my book, and especially when I've been working on the book in non-COVID times, I would often take the iPad to coffee shops or other places and work remotely, and I had you know have keyboard cases and things like that. And I, I love to work that way, but I always know that when I get home, I'm going to end up finalizing whatever it is that I do on the Mac. And and a lot of it is just my own comfort level and feeling good about that platform. And it's so familiar and I'm so concerned about just being super efficient. Uh, so not really a knock on the iPad, just feeling like the Mac is better suited to what I'm trying to do. But I'm happy to write on the iPad when the, the occasion presents itself. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Text Expander from Smile. Go to textexpander.com slash podcast and get 20% off when you let them know you heard about it on the Mac Power Users. With Text Expander, you can keep your text consistent and accurate. In our fast-paced world, things change constantly, and errors in messaging often have significant consequences. Text Expander lets you make new approved messaging available to every team member instantly with just a few keystrokes, ensuring your team remains consistent, current, and accurate. Get your messages right every time. Expand content that corrects your spelling and keeps your language consistent with just a few keystrokes. Your team members will consistently know the right messages for the right person at the right time without relying on memory or copy and paste. I pay for a team account for Text Expander for myself and my virtual assistant. And often we get emails from people with questions about purchases of field guides, and we've got these codes we need to track, and a bunch of stuff that changes routinely. And both my assistant and I have the ability to go into those snippets and make those changes whenever they occur. And the beauty of it is the other person just gets the benefit of that work. Then when we send an email out to a customer, if we use a text expander with a code included, it's automatically updated. Nobody has to check to make sure we have the right one. It just happens. And I've come to really appreciate the ability of the messaging consistency we can have between us. And we're just a small team with two people. 
but we get benefit from it. And I can only imagine how much more benefit you would get if you had a bigger team. So if you've got a team at work and you're trying to deal with customer support or just get consistent messaging to your customers and clients and vendors, Text Expander is the answer for you. And best of all, you can get 20% off for your, your whole team. Just go to textexpander.com slash podcast to learn more and sign up. And when you do so, make sure you let them know you heard about it at the Mac Power Users to get that 20% off. Thank you, Text Expander, for all of your support of the Mac Power Users. So we mentioned this earlier, Shelley, but you work uh, a Texas Standard radio show, which is, it, it's like the grown-up version of podcasting in my mind, right? Like real <laughs> equipment. You're not just, you know, in a, in a spare bedroom of your house. Um, well, but I'd not, love well to hear... not, not until recently. Well, yeah, well, yeah, 2020 changes that a little right, bit, maybe. Exactly. Uh, but I'd love to hear a little bit about uh, what you're doing there, and uh, maybe we start with your on-air work. Sure. Well, I do. Texas Standard has a number of segments each day, which fall into a couple or three basic categories. One is a Q&A segment where we interview guests about a topic. Our host does the interviewing. The second would be a reported story where I go out in the field and I talk to people and then I come back and I edit tape together. And the third is a segment that we call the social media segment. My job is not typically to do that segment, but I'm a backup for that editor. And what he does is he, based on the stories that are coming up on the standard that day, will uh, go out onto social media on on Texas standard social media feeds and find out what people are talking about and report that back on air. So that's the live component of what I do. That's the high wire part where I'm when I'm when I'm doing social media backup. So that part is. Uh, the least frequent, the the thing that I do most often on the air is book segments. And we have a bunch of uh, tools by which we book those segments and then write scripts and then send them off to the host and then get the edi- audio edited and uh, and ready for production. All right. So let's break that down and talk about um, some apps that you're using and, and how you're putting this together with the technology on the back end. So the show runs on a tool called Rundown Creator. It is a web-based tool that basically create that literally creates a clock and a rundown for the show. And the way I interact with that is that when I have a script for a segment that I've booked, and by script I mean a lead and questions for the host and links for the host to do research before he goes on the air with that person, then I put that in Rundown Creator, and that's just text. And what I tend to do is generate that in drafts or BB Edit or something like that, and it's kind of interchangeable for me, but for some reason I found that I like working in in BB Edit, even though it's for this particular task, it's overkill, but I have it anyway. So I will just make a text document and paste that into Rundown Creator, and then it, you know, moves forward. Uh, Once the interview has been conducted, and it's now conducted with the host and the host in the studio communicating with the guest over FaceTime audio or Skype. And here's a little radio inside thing for you. You hear a lot on radio shows people talk about Skype. Well, we prefer FaceTime audio if at all possible. So without intending to, we have this delightful Apple bias because the first question that we ask you if you're going to be a guest on the show is, do you have an iPhone? Because if you do, we're like all over it and we want to do FaceTime audio because we find that's the best quality. So, All right. Let me just interrupt there for a second. That what I mean, how did you get to that point? Well, that was our technical editor, our technical director, having, you know, gone through all the various ways that people can communicate with us via phone, via Skype, via FaceTime audio, just determined that 
by and large, FaceTime audio gives you the best quality. Also, it's the easiest for a guest. If a guest already has an iPhone, they don't even have to understand how it works. All we do is we call them via FaceTime audio. They pick up and all of a sudden they sound better than they've ever sounded. We have them hold the phone to their ears. They're not using ear pods or AirPods if we can possibly help it. So that tends to sound better. Skype is sometimes close to that, but FaceTime audio is almost always the best option we have. I would love to interview like one of the Apple audio engineers because I think that's a feature of the iPhone a lot of people miss is how good it is at audio. And I understand that like, you know, we right now are talking into fancy microphones and we have all sorts of gear we're using to make the show. But like my daughter, who was very active with like high school video production and now she's she's teaching it, um, they use iPhones all the time as remote mics. Like they'll just have a, an iPhone behind a desk or something because they don't have the money to have a fancy studio. And the same thing that I hear with people using FaceTime audio, how how good it is. And I don't know what all's going into that, but I think that's a part of the iPhone that does not really get enough credit. Well, NPR all the way down to the local stations and anybody who's accepting audio submissions from the people out in the world, the Vox Pop, uh, has has been suggesting for a long time that you just use the Voice Memo app on your phone. They used to say specifically the Voice Memo app on your iPhone, and now they've broadened it out because they can't just say iPhone people can be on the show. Yeah. But we have a segment yeah. called uh, Vaccine Tracker that we're doing right now where one of our editors takes submissions from listeners, and she says to them, record yourself in voice memo and then send it to this email address. And we've put a number of those on the air. And she, we have some uh, presets in Adobe Audition so that we can clean up the audio a little bit. Because the other thing about digital audio is it's always going to have the same negative characteristics. If there are any, you're going to be able to EQ a lot of the phone tape noise out of it, even better than you are with like plain old telephone uh, tape. And so you you start out ahead of the game because you you apply those effects and settings and you're, you're halfway to having decent sounding audio. I mean, it is so much better than the regular phone. I mean, I can't get over it. Like I use it for phone calls with clients all the time and it just sounds better. I don't, I don't know. I'm sure there's a lot of things going on there and it's not just the iPhone microphone, but um, it is crazy. Yep. Um, I want to go back also real quick about BB edit. Cause you just went past that really fast, but but you, what you have admitted is that you are what I would call an alpha nerd, right? Because <laughs> yeah. the um, you know, people there's there's different levels for writing. Like some people write in Microsoft Word, which is perfectly fine. Then like the next level up on Goldilocks here is like drafts, you know, where you've got you can add scripts and you can do a lot of stuff, but nothing really rises to the level of BB edit, you know. Um, you know, John Syracuse writes his stuff there. There's like a whole bunch of people who are super nerdy who write not programs, but text in BB edit. And every time I catch one of you on the show, my question is, what are you doing with BB edit with that text? I mean, cause there's so much, you, there's so much power in that app. What are the features in BB edit that you're taking advantage of? Well, the main thing I do with BB edit that it sort of earns its keep on is when I'm working on my books, which I think we'll get to a little bit later, I write in XHTML for reasons that I can, can go into, but I'm actually using the code 
elements of BBEdit. And more importantly, I'm fixing my syntax errors. So the fact that I use it for radio scripts or the text versions of radio scripts, there's two reasons to do that. Because whatever else you write in, if you write in pages or Word or something like that, and you paste somewhere, there's a risk that bad artifacts are going to come along with you. And unless you're trying to actually code in links, which I'm not in the case of scripts, it's just easier to write in a text-based tool. And the only reason I don't always use drafts is because I discovered BBEdit before drafts. And so I have like specific things for which I use drafts. And BBEdit also, which is really important to me, lets me say, this is how I want text to always look. I want it to be this size and I want it to be in this font. I guess other apps do too. I mean, you can change it. But when I open BBEdit, I always know what I'm going to get. The window is the same size. It's in the same place. The text looks the same. So that's like the simple version. And then I have like more complex. But I I know that I'm not using more than 5% of what BBEdit can do. And so every once in a while, I think to myself, (laughs) I should learn more about what this dang thing can do because it's amazing. I think a lot of people feel that way about BBEdit. Yeah, like I'll throw big piles of text in there to apply regular expressions. But I don't really use it as like a line editor as much. But no, I I get it. And there's a lot of people that do it. But I'm... I'm super curious about that because there's part of me that thinks I should be writing in BB Edit because of all those tools, but and I'm good enough with what I have right now. And I, I like it's find and replace. I like that you can find and replace across multiple files. That's really fun yeah. too. Yeah, it's crazy what they can do in that app. Yeah. Now I use things like Pages and Word Word for radio scripts for and as opposed to something I'm going to put in Rundown Creator, a radio script that I'm actually going to read where I'm going to tape it and then have it, you know, a narrated segment, I'll use Pages or Word or even Google Docs for the following reason. Because there's kind of a formula for how much text equals one minute of radio. And so I have a Word template or a Google Doc template. I think I have them both set up the same way. That if I paste in my text, it double spaces it, it puts it in the proper font, and I know one page equals one minute. And so it's a real quick shorthand. Before I even read the text aloud, I have some sense of how long that script is going to be. And that's what I do for the live scripts because I'm usually in a hurry. I've got a segment that goes on at 10, 19 a.m., and it's 9.47. I don't have time to read through my script three times. I'm just going to paste it in there. I'm going to apply the template and then I'm going to transfer it over to the app where I'm going to read it aloud. But that's really different than writing text that's just going to be text and is going to go into Rundown Creator. Sure. You also do some teleprompter work, right? Yeah. For those live segments, the the, the workflow basically is I spend the early part of my day figuring out what I'm going to talk about. I'll put Twitter prompts and Facebook prompts out on the site and say, hey, this is what's coming up on the show. What do you think? When I get comments from listeners or when I sort of figure out what's going to be the hot button issue, then I have to write two scripts. I have a one minute segment and then about a three and a half minute segment. And so what I do is I build those scripts in usually pages lately because this teleprompter app that I have for the iPad, it's called Teleprompter by Joe Allen. There's a basic version and a premium version. And I love the premium version because not only can I take a pages document, put it on my iCloud desktop, and then just open it up in teleprompter and have it formatted exactly as I want, the size of text, the color of text, the speed at which the text moves across the page. But I I can have it on my 12.9-inch iPad Pro, which I have on a stand that is eye-level with my microphone. And especially now that I'm working at home and I'm doing these via FaceTime audio as well, I'm basically the show is calling me 
and I'm reading that script aloud from the teleprompter on my iPad Pro. And that is the easiest workflow ever in terms of just like turning something from words that I pasted into a file to a script that I'm reading out to an audience on 30-year radio stations. You, you said you have to, so you do the same story with a three and a half minute and a one minute version? I have a one minute version at this, the first break in the show. And then the three and a half minute uh, uh, segment is at the end of the show. So the first is kind of a tease. What Here's what we've talked about in the A segments. What did you guys think of it? And then people will respond. And then by the end of the show, we may, we may be talking about other topics. The end of the show is more lighter stuff. Hey, it's uh, football this weekend. Such and such a Texas person is doing an amazing thing. And and I know and care nothing about sports, which is why I always talk about it, because I'm insecure. And so I, I always get on the show and feel like I need to talk about sports. But So I, ha- <laughs> I have to build two segments. And the way I've sort of sorted that out is I have a an A segment template and a D E segment template. So the A segment template, it reminds me, hey, you only have a minute. You're only going to be able to hit one topic and maybe two comments. But the E segment is quite a lot longer. And so I'm trying to shoot for, you know, three and a half pages or so of copy. And then also then I have to cut it back because I know the host is going to talk to me at some point in the middle of that. But that's just my my brain needs to put it in those individual boxes so that when I get on the air, I don't have to think about things like, oh, I hope I didn't write too long. <laughs> yeah, I, I was just thinking, like, if you got a three and a half minutes, but you've got to get to one minute, I was just thinking, oh, boy, that's that's actually hard. Well, what they do, and that's the other thing, like, sometimes it can change based on what else is on the show, and they give me as much warning as they can. So I'll look and run down, and it'll tell me, a uh, social media segment, Shelly has three minutes and 15 seconds, and then I'll get a note in Slack that says, oh, you have 340, or oh, you have 225. And I also will have, because uh, I come into my little podcast closet here, and I have a, a website where I go and I need a timer so that I can watch my time tick down. But I I found one online that is really giant type. So it looks kind of like those studio clocks that you would normally see in a radio studio. And I feel like I'm so much better set up here at home to do that than I was in the studio because they got me this great iPad stand for the studio, but but I don't have the clock that I have here at home. And so I, I kind of I kind of want to put it in my contract that I should only have to do live segments from my comfortable podcast closet here at home. <laughs> I, I think Stephen and I should have a matching set of those clocks. So like if I start rambling about Disneyland or Stephen, <laughs> you know, Stephen gets into <laughs> the uh, the merits of a Macintosh made in 1991 by a third party developer. <laughs> I, one of us can push a button and it right. just says on the wall, you have 30 seconds. Up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've always, I've always been curious about how people ha- prepare audio that has to hit an exact window of time. Cause here on podcasts, we can just ramble forever. And uh, so it's really interesting to hear how you have baked that into your workflow. So you, you know, what, what you're going to get at the end of it. It's a super hard skill to master for somebody who podcasts all the time. And, you know, we call it hitting the post. And the the closest experience to to doing that, I guess, is on a show like Clockwise, where you're trying to speak in in quick little bites. But there's no room for error. There's no editing after the fact. I mean, when the show is over and when I hear the music... I need to be quiet so I can let David close out the show, who's our host. And uh, yeah, it's 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 a challenging skill and frankly, one that I feel like I have to practice. It's it's not so much that I even want to be on air all the time, although it's fun to do that. But I, I have said to the other folks, you have to give me more segments because I need to practice this skill. It's hard and it's really paid off in the end. 
And how do you jump between podcasting, which you do regularly, and this time-sensitive radio? I, I think that would even be more confusing. You, you literally do it at different times of day. I mean, that's the way my brain works is there's, there's work time and there's podcast time. And the people I work for, especially since we're all at home, are not sticklers for that. I don't punch any sort of time clock. I mean, I have time-sensitive deadlines, and we, we know when the show is every day. But my brain likes it best if there are certain hours of day of the day that belong to the radio, and then I'm done with that. And then I can come and talk to lovely folks like yourselves or do my own podcasts. And sort of taking the time between the radio bit and the podcast bit to reset my brain, it, it just helps me. It helps me do both jobs better. Now, you said that you additionally routinely do news stories where you go out in the field and, I guess, interview people. Um, What's the tech and workflow for that? I have a Zoom 8.6 field recorder and a uh, Rode NTG shotgun microphone. And so I just go out and put that microphone in folks' faces and uh, ask them questions. And the nice thing about that is it's not important that my audio be heard because I'm going to take what they tell me and I'm going to edit it into a segment that I'm going to narrate. And once I figured that out, because whenever I've done interviews like at trade shows or for my own podcasts, I've always concerned about both sides' audio being really good and especially my own. I'm the host. I want to sound good. But if you're doing a field recording, your only focus needs to be on how the guest sounds. And obviously, for, for sort of reference, you, you want to be able to hear yourself. What question did I ask? But if your questions are good enough, that doesn't even matter. So I go out and I interview folks, and then I take my tape back, and then I uh, have to transcribe it. I'll usually use a – there's a tool called Trint that uh, we at the station have a license to. So I will just immediately transcribe all that tape, find uh, the the quotes or the sound bites that I want – and then uh, put them, edit them together. We use Adobe Audition for our multi-track editing. You could use anything. You could use Logic Pro. You could use any number of tools. And Adobe Audition is just what we've standardized at the station. But I, uh, I, I pull that tape together and I, I put it into segments. I'll put, uh, I'll put my narration on, which I'll record here. Then I will put either I will add uh, music where it's appropriate or our fabulous director, Leo Scarpelli, who is the queen of all things musical, uh, will suggest and score the thing for me. So that's exciting. When I take a segment that is done and it's to time and it sounds real good and the script has been edited, and then I give it to Leah and she makes it sound even better by putting music underneath it. Uh, And I would imagine that's a whole different skill to really edit that tape into a coherent interview and then do your voiceovers. I, I would also assume you're probably really good at Adobe Edition by now in terms of moving things and keyboard shortcuts and all that. I'm better than I used to be by far. And because I my my preferred audio editor is a tool called Amadeus Pro by Harrisoft. And I though that tool can do multi-track, I only use it for single track. So if I have to edit something that's just my voice or if I have to edit one of these uh, Q&A segments that we're going to put on the show, I'll use that tool because it's so much simpler and I'm really good at it. And I'm really fast. And then for Adobe Audition, I'm, I typically use that when I'm having to do complicated multi-track s- segments. And then I will send the whole session uh, to Leah to sort of give it the final polish if it needs it. And she's real good, too, about giving uh, guidance and saying, you know, here's here's what you could do to make it sound just that much better. And so I've now started using Audition in my podcasts because I have panel shows where I have, you know, two to four guests. And so I will, uh, I feel much more comfortable in multi-track than I used to. And, and I, and I really enjoy it. I think it's, 
It can be a lot of work and there are challenges when using Adobe software sometimes, but it's also really flexible. You can customize your keyboard shortcuts if you want to. I haven't done so much of that, but I've gotten better at, you know, ripple deletes and fades and and all the things that sort of make it sound much better in the end. I did not realize Amadeus Pro was still around. That oh, yeah. that app has been around a long time. It's great. It's and it's because its interface is so simple. I mean, it has effects if you wanted to actually do post processing on your audio, you could. It uses Apple a, a, a units and Apple units and uh, VSTs, but my preference is to just do all the sort of basic stuff. I think uh, you guys might have talked about Fission, which is also a great tool, but I feel mm-hmm. like that's analogous to the way I use Amadeus Pro. And Amadeus Pro also doesn't seem to be much of a memory hog. It just seems to be happy and content to take my WAV file and do what I need to do with it. And I use it for all of my own editing of my podcasts, of my own segments, of my own um, uh, voice stuff, and then I'll pop it into something else if I need to. Yeah, and it's it's not too expensive. It's on the Mac App Store. This it's good to know this app is still around. I I lost at some point I lost track of Amadeus. Don't know how that happened. This episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you by DevonThink, the flagship product from Devon Technologies. You can get 10% off DevonThink 3 or upgrade to it now by going to devontechnologies.com/mpu. DevonThink is the most professional document and information management application for the Mac. It's the one place for storing all your documents, snippets, bookmarks, and then working with them. DevonThink's integrated AI assists you with filing and searching, while the extensive search language and advanced Boolean operators make it easy to find what you're looking for. DevonThink features a flexible syncing system that supports many cloud services, or lets you synchronize over your local network with everything securely encrypted. This gives you the choice for however syncing works best for you. It has smart rules and flexible reminders that let you automate all parts of your workflow and delegate the boring repeating tasks. Let DevonThink automatically organize your data and rules you define. DevonThink's AppleScript dictionary is one of the largest on the Mac. There's no part of DevonThink that cannot be automated. You can extend the functionality with your own commands by adding them to the built-in scripts menu. And templates can have scripts inside of them, and you can set up new documents with data from placeholders or inserted by your own AppleScript code. And of course, there's so much more from a new iOS companion app to email archiving, scanning, even an embed web server for you to share your data securely with your team. DevonThink is the tool I use to hold all of my tech history resources, scans of magazines, uh, PDFs. JPEGs, all sorts of stuff are all in DevonThink. I can quickly search and find exactly what I'm looking for, the needle in the haystack. So you can get 10% off DevonThink 3 or upgrade to it now by going to devontechnologies.com slash MPU. That's devontechnologies.com slash MPU for 10% off. Our thanks to Devon Technologies for their support of the show. In addition to uh, all your reporting work, uh, you also were mentioned that you help with the website. What are your tools for that? So I run the website for Texas Standard. What we do is we produce a web post for each segment of the show. It's myself and another team member. And then we get 
people to write segments for us. If they've produced a segment, we'll often ask them to write the segment, uh, the, the post for it. So I, we have to, I have to manage all of that stuff. And we do that in Trello. And so each post is represented by a card in Trello. Uh, Trello will let you tag posts, will let you tag cards so that, for example, we have one that says still needs audio, still needs art because each post has to have an image. You can attach files. You can attach text comments. You can just attach anything you want to. You can attach sound. You can attach team members' names so that when I make the assignments for the web in the morning, I will put a team member's name. I'll put tags that say it still needs art. I'll say I'll put another tag that say that it needs to be cross-post to our uh, uh, host station, KUT. And then those cards move all the way from today's task where they start all the way to published and then finally to the archive at the end of the day. And so Trello is kind of my dashboard for seeing where all the pieces are for the web page for that day. Sure. The Kanban view. I, you yeah. know, I am um, just recently did a deep dive on all the online Trello Kanban type apps. And I think Trello is really the winner. I mean, a lot of them seem like they're overpriced and overfeatured. Like they put a bunch of bells and whistles that rarely would you need. Um, where Trello is just simple. It has what you need and anybody can start using it. I, I think that's a great like solution. Yeah, it's it's actually it's something we're looking to perhaps move beyond because there's some desire in the organization for several teams to share access to information. And we've been looking at this tool called Asana, which I know very little about. I think it's more involved than Trello, but I think some of the teams need different things than I do. And a challenge we have with Trello is that those of us who use it, use it a lot. And those of us and those of the team who don't use it or who are not sort of focused on opening up Trello in the morning because they're busy producing radio segments, they sort of haven't bought in. So we're trying to find a tool that meets all of those needs. And, and uh, we're still working on it. But Trello has been, as long as I've been there, has been the main tool that we've used for this purpose. Uh, one of them that has a, f- a few more features, but it is more expensive, is one called Monday. Um but honestly, I for for my team stuff, I think Trello is probably the right answer. But there there are there are other options out there. In fact, I I built one in Omni OmniGraph also. I've got a lot of people mad at me about that, Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's okay. Yeah. You gotta you know, just keep it just, Okay, can I just say it's just for me? I can manage it. I don't need it to be online. I don't need to share it with the world. It's okay, You're your guys. own team, David. You yeah. don't need to write me. Uh, okay. Shelly, what's some of the technology at play with the website itself and how you interact with it? So our website is based on WordPress. It's highly customizable. And I mentioned that because if you're tempted to say, well, here's a trick you can do to make things easier in WordPress, let me assure you that it probably doesn't work because of the customization of our site. So what I've had to do, and I'm happy to do it because they're great tools, I've built a lot of Keyboard Maestro and a lot, a lot, a lot of text expander into the way I build the segments that we do. So several of our segments have templated text within them. You know, this is Week in Politics with Texas Tribune, and here's a link. Or uh, if you liked what you're reading, please donate to KUT.org and Texas Standard. And, and all of that stuff is templated. And so I have text expander snippets that will pop those into the proper places for each post. Because the first thing I do in the morning is I build all the posts with all the templated material. I put in the categories, I put in the dates, all that stuff, which is what I do when I'm waking myself up as I build my my website shell posts, basically. And some of the more complex things that I have Text Expander do for me are, for example, build the rundown for the show post. There's one post that 
encapsulates everything we're doing on the show. So all eight or nine segments. And I have basically an HTML template that I've built that formats it the way I want to. And so I drop that in with text expander snippets that first add the correct date and then they give me a blank where I can fill in any other custom information I need for the date. But then they drop in all of this HTML. And again, I can't use Markdown, so don't even ask me that <laughs> because that's not available on our site, sadly. But because of Text Expander, it's all the same. I can I can just do it in HTML or I could convert it. In, I, I've started out doing this in drafts in Markdown and then converting it to HTML there and then dropping it into the web post. And then I was like, you know, I can just do it all as HTML and text expander and yeah. edit it there. So that's what I did. Simplify. Do they have any idea how much automation you're doing, Shelley? Uh, well, it's funny because I made them buy me these tools. And yeah. Text Expander gives you this nice monthly email that tells you how much time you've saved and how many snippets you've used. Yeah. And I have sent that to my managers a couple times, just so you know, you made it a good investment. So yeah. I, I have I felt like I've quantified myself in that way. I, I feel like they still don't really understand how much you've automated. <laughs> no, I'm sure that well, because I've tell them I'm I've tell them I've done this amazing new thing and they they they're like, okay, well, that's really great. What time will it be ready? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just, they just want results, but that's Before cool. Before you're ready for it, that's when it'll be ready. Now, you had said you do this both Text Expander and Keyboard Master. Where do you draw the line? That's a really good question because when I got them both at the same time and what I thought I would be doing with Keyboard Maestro was a lot of multiple clipboard management. And sure. then I figured out, well, no, I can just do these things in Text Expander and use fill-in fields. Yeah. And I don't, I hardly ever use the multiple clipboards anymore. So what I use Keyboard Maestro for is opening a selection of of apps. I open individual apps all the time that way. I have a, I control one for me is these are all the apps I need in the morning, Slack, Trello, uh, Firefox, which is my current browser for main browser for the site, uh, the VPN client that I use to connect to the server, mail, all the tools that I need pop open at once. The windows are in the right places. So primarily it's about opening stuff and, yeah, and setups. using yeah, yeah. setups. Whereas text expander is all about either just dropping blocks of text or taking blocks of text and manipulating them. Like one of my text expander things will uh, create this compound URL that I need because we stream our show as well as making it available as a podcast. And so if we add the stream URL to the show URL, then it magically puts the little ad in the front of it. And so I have this this snippet that just adds today's date and away we go. And so that's the kind of thing I do with Text Expander. Yeah, automation is so great. And it, especially when you're working in a company and they rarely understand it, you know, but it's like, it sounds to me like you're almost doing two full-time jobs, you know, and it's, I'm sure well, this this automation stuff probably is one of the reasons you're able to to carry so much water. Well, it's it's really true. I mean, to, and to be honest, I I started as primarily the website builder and they knew that I wanted to do radio stuff, but I felt like before I could say, all right, here are my pitches that I needed to be super efficient and fast at what I do. And also, I was just concerned about accuracy because I knew that my tendency is to try and do things really quickly. And if you do that, sometimes you make mistakes. And so what I find Text Expander especially helpful for is preventing dumb mistakes. Like I never make a mistake in the name of somebody who's writing a post because those are snippets. All of the little boilerplate text that we have is always correct. So that just gives me more time to do things in general. But specifically, it gives me more time to, once my day is done, switch over from production mode to let's make some radio mode, which is is a creative task, whereas usually doing the website is very production focused. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. 
what's the flow like to get uh, scripts from people on to the website? You mentioned earlier that people working in Word or, or Pages, or I assume there's some probably some Google Docs in there somewhere. How do you bring things from that into WordPress? Well, that's the challenge is because everybody is comfortable with the tools that they use. Mostly it's Word and Google Docs, more Google Docs than anything else. But what people will typically do is either put a Word doc on Trello, attach it physically, or if it's a Google doc, they'll put the link on Trello, or sometimes they'll just slack it to me because people can't necessarily follow instructions. But then (laughs) I put it on Trello so that I can always keep track of it. So I will take that. I will edit it because one of my jobs, if, if you write a script for me, I'll edit it. If I'm writing a segment, which I write a couple segments a day, and then I, I will drop them into WordPress so that my colleague can edit them, but nobody else is using the WordPress. It's primarily myself and the other web editor. And so I once I've edited them for content, made sure all the links work and that sort of thing, uh, then I'll drop it into WordPress. Often, though, if I'm in Google Docs, I'll use a, a converter that sort of cleans up the HTML because Docs to H, it, it, Google Docs will generate some ugly HTML, as will a lot of other CMSs. So uh, I, I run it through a converter so that when I get it into the uh, WordPress, all I have are nice little paragraphs with links. There's not much formatting, and it just it, it makes it much cleaner and much nicer, especially if I have to go back and edit. And we do things like we include embeds of Twitter and Instagram posts and things when they're relevant. And so the worst thing in the world is when you have extraneous HTML that kind of breaks the way those things format out. So I try to clean those up as much as I possibly can. And, you know, it is amazing in 2021 how much bad HTML is being generated by a web, you know, air quote web tools. Uh, I feel like at this point, the uh, the program should be doing a better job. But anytime the robot makes the HTML code, I find that it's just full of nonsense that it doesn't need. It's awful because WordPress will let you. I'm using uh, the old word, classic WordPress editor rather than the block editor now. But but you can go from visual mode to text mode. And when I go to text mode, I'm usually horrified by the HTML I find there. But the reason I'm in text mode is because something doesn't look right and I can't figure out why. And then I realize that all this bogus HTML has been added to my life. And so I have to fix it. <laughs> and then do you manage graphics as well for the posts? Yeah, each post has to have at least one image. So I spent a lot of time acquiring those images. We have a wonderful multimedia team that takes photos for us, uh, but we also acquire from other uh, copy, uh, copyright acceptable sources, either their public domain or their government or that sort of thing. So since we get images from a lot of different places, and sometimes the producers will bring images that a guest has provided, and I have to make sure all those images will, number one, are they good enough quality for us? Number two, are they high enough resolution? Because sometimes you'll get terrible scans that are like 300 by 300 or something awful and you can't use them. I can't fix that. But I can uh, crop images to the size that I need them. I need wide images, you know, 800 by 600 at the very least. And then I need to make sure that, as I say, they're, they're wide rather than square. So when I get images in, I drop them into the folder where I'm going to evaluate them, and then I figure out what needs to happen to them. Sometimes I need to convert them all to JPEG. If they're not. So I use Graphic Converter, another delightful uh, Mac tool of long standing, to uh, do all my to do batch converts and, and batch sizing of, of images to make sure that they're just the way I want them. I could probably use any. I could use Preview, I suppose. But Graphic Converter has nice batch features, and and in fact, for for my book, I use Graphic Converter to do like whole batches of them at once. And because they're all like iPhone screenshots, so they have the same aspect ratio and the same same quality. But I, I've just found that that old tool to be extremely useful. 
Honestly, when I saw in the outline that you had put both Amadeus and graphic converter in, it just warmed, warmed <laughs> the cockles school, of my heart. Man. <laughs> it was so good seeing some of these apps. I, because you're right. Some of these old tools, they're still around. Um, they don't have massive marketing budgets or whatever, but they are very good apps and long proven. And, you know, graphic converter, the batch processing is what put it on the map in the first place. Now they're up to version 11 of graphic converter. I went and looked what? it up. What I like about it, I mean, I have the whole Adobe suite, right? I could do all that stuff in, in Photoshop, you know, one photo at a time. But just the overhead of I've got to launch Photoshop, I've got to wait for it to load, I've got to dig through all the tool palettes that are there. Graphic Converter is just so easy to, to fire up, do exactly what I need. To, I mean, it does help that I know the app super well. But, you know, using a using a hammer on a nail instead of a bulldozer is, is which is a terrible metaphor, but you get the idea. It's like... yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, and a full version of graphic and if you've never owned it before, non-upgrade price is 40 bucks. Like how much does it cost for one month of Adobe Photoshop? Cause it's only a subscription now. I don't know what right. it is, but it's, I would guess that you'd get to $40 pretty quickly. Pretty quickly. And you get more tools. And if you need things like Illustrator, if you're making custom graphics, I'm not building a lot of my own. And and in fact, we're trying to make more custom stuff. And we use Adobe Spark for that, which is a web-based tool that lets you do really interesting text overlays on images and, and create uh, animations and stuff that are really a lot of fun. But mostly what I'm doing is dealing with still images that have come from many places and have many qualities. And all I need to do is make sure that they fit properly. Shelly, you've got this thing about the dual Mac lifestyle. You, you got to explain this to me. I don't understand. <laughs> so here's the thing. So I have always done work for the radio station on my personal Mac or on the work Mac. It doesn't really matter to me, whichever Mac is closest to hand. But especially after the pandemic, when both of those Macs were living here, it became crucial to me to have a browser that had all the workbook marks and another one that had all the home bookmarks and that I have a file system that where I am I at work or am I at home? It was important to me, not to not to the university that owns the Mac that I have, but it was important to me to just be able to keep track of stuff. And so the first thing I did, yeah. and I started this in, in Chrome, and I, I'm using Firefox now more than, than Chrome, and I believe both of them will do it. Uh, but the first thing I did was create, it, create an account for home and an account for work. And so all of the work stuff, all the tabs and the folders full of bookmarks that I need for work are in one personality that's my work life. And then the other one has all my podcasting and my personal stuff, any bookmarks that I that are not associated with work. And since I sync those across both Macs, I can still work on any Mac I want to. But if I save a bookmark, I'm not saving it to the wrong place. I'm not like, oh, that's a bookmark for work, but I saved it into this Chrome personality that has nothing to do with with work. So I don't make mistakes like that. And then I also, because we, we have access to all these different cloud services, I decided that iCloud was going to be the one where if I needed to move files between the work and the home life, I could do that in iCloud. And the, the way I made the decision was just things I don't want to share with my work, I put in Dropbox. And so my iCloud drive, I have mounted on my work machine. And if I there's a file that for some reason I would like to get or send to my home self, uh, I just put it on the desktop and it's available for me when I need it. And just that little bit of knowing where to put a thing so that I can find it on the other device. And it can, and of course, it's available on the iPad as well. So I've used that a little bit for on-air scripts. Like if I generate a script, sure. I can put it on the desktop and, and there it is. And so that's just made it 
made me feel less scatterbrained, I guess is the main thing I'd say about that. Well, I mean, you brought intentionality to this this problem of multiple kind of personalities on your computer, the work computer versus the personal computer. But right. I mean, I'd argue for you, you it's a work computer on both sides because you're doing, you're creating content on both sides of it. Exactly. But I mean, it's just like, the, cause, because the, the first brush of it was, as I say, it's so it's a work computer that is that is being backed up remotely for the benefit of my employers. And yeah. so that's great. But I want to think about what personal stuff, if any, do I want on that computer? It's not so much keep my personal stuff off the work computer because I shouldn't have it there for, for their purposes. It's for my purposes. What, what do I want to protect and what do I want to keep over across this walled garden? And if I decide that I'm at the MacBook Pro right now and I would like to edit a podcast, I'm not doing anybody any harm if I drag that podcast over and edit it in audition on my work laptop. But when I'm done with it, I need to make sure that it's back where I can find it in my other life. Yeah. And, and I've bumped into this wearing my lawyer hat. I mean, it, it is uh, people forget when you've got a work computer or anything on there, they have access to it. And sometimes people have stuff on there they really would rather should not have had on there. You know? Right. One of my, my favorite features while we're on the, on the topic is those different uh, profiles in Chrome is you can set the like the UI colors in Chrome to be different. And so the one that I have for logging into my YouTube channel, because it's the only thing I use that Google ID for, the top of the browser is bright red. So I know that I'm logged into, like, this is the account the videos live on. Don't do anything else in here. And it's really something I wish Safari had. Someone, you know, I switched to Safari a couple years ago and I've stuck but there are definitely times where I miss the ability to switch into a different profile and, and be logged into a different set of things. Absolutely. And I miss that, too, because I would like to be able to have my bookmarks seamlessly move with me over to the iPad because I'm still using Safari on the iPad. And so I haven't really sorted that for myself yet. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by SaneBox. Go to samebox.com slash MPU to get a $25 credit on any plan. There's one thing you can do right now to make your email life easier, and all it requires is going to samebox.com slash MPU and signing up. Because SaneBox is like a set of power tools for your email that will work with just about any email client or service. And for a low monthly fee, you can just improve your email. SaneBox has a whole host of tools available to you once you sign up for it. Now, this starts with filtering. Now, when SaneBox looks at your inbox, it can only see who sent the email and what the subject line is. But just with that little bit of information, it is spooky good at filtering your email for you. It may put some stuff that's not as important in the later folder, leaving your inbox with just those key emails. So when you check your mail, you see just what you need to see. But there's a whole bunch more you can do with SaneBox. You can use a deferring email. So you can say, take this email and hide it from me until next Monday morning. Or you can have it uh, go ahead and put it in the black hole. SaneBox has this thing called the same black hole. So if you get email from someone and you don't want to ever hear from that person again, you ban them from the black hole, SaneBox takes care of the rest. The features just continue to grow because they just keep adding them to this service. And it's kind of amazing. One of my favorite is Sane Reminders. It's a feature that I've never seen in any other email application or service. 
And it's really awesome. So when you send an email out to someone important, you can blind copy it to one week at samebox.com. And you don't have to just use one week. You can use hours or days or whatever. But I usually use one week. And if that person doesn't write me back in a week, I get a reminder from SaneBox telling me, hey, that person never wrote you back. What are you going to do about it? Before I used to track those emails individually in my task system, it took a bunch of effort and time. Now I don't have to do that because SaneBox does it for me with the same reminder service. And it's more than all that filtering. It also has attachments for like Dropbox support. So any attachment you get gets sent to Dropbox. They've got pricing plans starting as low as $4 a month. And best of all, there's a 14-day free trial. So go get that 14-day free trial. Try it out and you'll believe. Uh, once again, that URL is sanebox.com slash MPU to get that $25 credit. MPU listeners love this service. Our podcast gets the highest you know, sign-up rate because MPU listeners understand the importance of saving time, and SaneBox does that for you. So what are you waiting for? Stop drowning in your email. Go to sanebox.com slash MPU today and sign up. Shelly, as we were preparing for the show, you know, you started telling me about your workflows and file management, and you are doing so many things. You're managing files for your podcasts, your books, your radio shows, and you've got all these different workflows for them. Everybody struggles with file management, but it seems like you've uh, given a lot of thought to it. So I thought it'd be fun to talk through some of your ideas about file management. You game? Yeah, absolutely. All right. So let's let's start with the the MacBook Pro that records the shows, the old MacBook Pro you're sitting at right now. Yeah, absolutely. So I record multiple shows, both my own and when I'm guesting on somebody else's show. And so what I was finding, and also in different methods. So sometimes I have a Zoom backup. Sometimes I have the recording I've made just of myself. There are all sorts of scenarios under which I'm recording audio from this computer. And the first thing I realized is I want all of that audio to go to the same place so that I never lose it. And so that's what I did. But then, oh, wait, I have this mass of audio. I need to find some way to sort it. So for the first time in my life, I started using macOS tags, and I just never had done it. I'm not a color user person. Sure. I'm colorblind, and so coloring them gray or whatever, using those using colors doesn't matter. So I named the tags, and naming the tags also gave me the ability to have Hazel act upon them, a tool I know you guys use and love. Uh, and so when I record something... I first tag it with what it's whether it's LTS, which is my podcast Lions Towers and Shields, or PAR for Parallel, or or guest is when I'm going to be on somebody else's show. And based on what tag it has, that file is sent to another place, the folder where I'm going to work on it later. If it's a guest uh, audio file, it goes into Dropbox, and then I can either upload it to the person who's asked me for it, or I can give them a link to that file. And just happens automatically. And then Hazel clears out that folder after 45 days. It used to be like 30 days, but then I got paranoid that at some point I would delete something I needed. And so I just made it 45 yeah. days. Yeah. It's okay, Shelly. In six months, it'll be 60 days because I'm, I'm, I'm at <laughs> right? 60 days now with my rules just for the same right? reason. Yeah. And then I have – so I, I always make Zoom backups when I'm recording a call. And so I will tag that whole folder full of Zoom stuff that I hope to never need. And it's this it's on the same 45-day schedule. So I have these ridiculous folders full of files that, if I'm very lucky, I will never have to see again. But at least I know they're safe. 
Yeah, but, but what you've stumbled in here is something that I think a lot of people should consider. Even if you're not into tagging for purposes of sorting and finding, which is really what tags were built for, tags also make excellent triggers for Hazel. And um, so Hazel's an app that, you know, if you haven't heard us, you know, yammer on about it before, it will take files and do things to them. But you just have to tell it, you know, what, you know, what's the basis for doing it? Is it a string of text in the name of the file or is it the special location or whatever? But you can also use a tag. So say if there is a tag that says MPU attached to this audio file, then copy it to the cloud drive where the editor picks up the MPU file, which is one of my Hazel rules. So it's a tag that is not serving any purpose of a traditional tag, but just giving Hazel a rock solid reason to grab onto a file. Because uh, I, I don't know of anything more solid than manually adding a tag, and it just takes a minute. Well, and what's nice is because it's in the file dialog box, I would never remember if I had to go and right-click and add a tag later. But if I, when, when we're done talking today, I'm going to save my file. I'm in Amadeus Pro, and I'm going to save it, and I'm going to tag it guest, and it's going to go to the place I want it to go to. And I'm also having Hazel do some auto magic with the file name. So it will have today's date. Because it says guest, it'll have my name. It doesn't need my name if it's for my own show because I know who I am. And then I'll pro- all I'll have to type is MPU, and you'll get a file name that's something like MPU underscore Shelly underscore date. Yeah. And then you'll go, oh, well, that's a file. I know what that file is. And so that hopefully helps the people on whose shows I guessed. And for my own, it makes it easy for me once I pull them into audition with everybody else's tracks that I'm going to grab it makes it easy for me to see, you know, which is my file versus theirs. And that's the other thing. So when I ask people to submit files to me for for shows via Dropbox, I also tag them immediately when they arrive. They're they're in Dropbox, they're in sort of a staging folder, and they're waiting for me to tag them. And then once I tag them, they go into a folder. They start out in Dropbox, but they end up in my on my Mac in the office because I don't really like to edit audio that's in the cloud. I like to store it in there, but I don't like to edit it in there. So all of my rules assume that the destination is going to be on a local drive. Yeah. And I do the exact same thing you do with the the Zoom files. I, I just, my tag is podcast backup and it puts it in a special folder and 60 days later it, it throws it out. A similar rule that anybody could use is what I call the burn bag tag. And it's like, if you have a file that you want to hold on for just a little while, but you want to make sure you delete it, Sometimes I get um, confidential data from clients and I put it in the burn bag and that holds it for 90 days and then deletes the file after 90 days. So, there you go. You know, you, so there's all sorts of little ways you can trick with this stuff. But the takeaway, I think, is tags make great triggers. And if you're going to use something like Hazel and you want to make sure that a rule fires every time. Uh, using a tag. Oh, and uh, one last power tip here. You can have Hazel remove the tag as part of the action. So you can put the tag on just long enough to move the file and then actually remove the tag if you don't want to see the tags. There you go. I haven't done that. I don't I don't know whether I need to do that or not. I have to think about that, but uh, that's a good that's a good tip. Well, if you're anal retentive and you don't want to see the <laughs> tags. Yeah. Right. Banish those tags. Yeah. The other thing I do is I for work I don't use tags, but I work with all the audio files for the segments because first I have to, if I'm going to write them uh, segments based on audio, I will listen to the file. I will add a little bug at the beginning that says you're listening to Texas Standard. I'll convert it to an MP3 and then I'll eventually put it on the web post. So I have all these files. I have all these images. Any files that I'm making over the course of the day, I, I always save to the same folder 
And then uh, at the end of the day, Hazel will put them in a different folder, which will ultimately be archived into that day's archive. And 99% of the time, I don't even need that archive. But on the 1% of the time when it's like, oh, where is that segment? Where's the audio for the A2 from yesterday? Because I'm going to find it because it's sent off to a cloud service that is, uh, the, the, the university gives me access to OneDrive. So I'm using three cloud services, but they all have different jobs in my life. And as I say, Hazel makes the archives just just happen and never even have to think about them. So so using three cloud services, is there any <laughs> war stories you can share? I mean, I'm sure there's people listening that have the same problem with work and home and all that. The main thing was figuring out what I want each of them to do. I like iCloud because it's, well, it's Mac native. It's always there. And it 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 I think they're all less bad than they used to be in their own way. I know people complain about Dropbox. I have had very little difficulty with Dropbox. iCloud is the one where it's not necessarily updated from device to device right away, and I have to do the 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 uh, tech version of kicking it so that it will cause the updates to happen. And I don't typically have that problem with with uh, Dropbox. And OneDrive is just me sending stuff to it. I almost never even have to to worry about it. But uh, I I have had what I perceive to be pretty good luck, especially with Dropbox. Yeah, I mean, my entire workflow is on top of it, and it's been really rock solid for me. And I don't mind that it has all these hooks into the Finder because it's it's generally pretty well behaved. Yeah, that's what scares me, honestly, is is not that it's not stable, but everything it does to install itself. But I've learned to find peace with Dropbox, and <laughs> I'm not going to fight it anymore. But but I, I've never had any data loss with any of these cloud services. I've used I use Google a lot with some clients. I use iCloud a lot with personal. I use Dropbox professionally, and I'm not aware of any data loss on any of them in many years. I feel like that we're we're at a pretty good place with all the cloud services. iCloud used to be really messy, and like I say, the worst thing that happens is that sometimes. One device isn't updated as quickly as I would like. And usually if I either wait or if I refresh, I'll get what I need. The trouble is that because I'm shipping audio around, it's not as quick as if it was just, oh, let's get that pages document moved from one place to another. Because one thing I do in podcasts is I use uh, Ferrite on the iPad to strip silence out of my segments. And then I move those back and forth with iCloud. And sometimes then I go to the computer to actually put the files into Audition and edit them. And, oh, it's not there yet. And so I have to wait. But then I just remember how bad it used to be when sometimes there was data loss several years ago. And I guess I feel fortunate. <laughs> yeah, we used to always joke about it on really old episodes of Mac Power Users, how we thought there was like one computer in Cupertino that was the iDrive, you know? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. It's like, and oh, then no, that guy turned it off one night. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Shelly, how, how are you backing all this stuff up? I mean – you got a lot of stuff on cloud services, which isn't really a backup, but it's better than nothing. How do you manage this between your multiple machines? Well, it's funny. On the iMac, which is the one that I had intended to upgrade and, and determined I couldn't when I opened it up, uh, I had bought a 500 gig SSD. And so I, <laughs> this is going to sound so silly because it's just a really simple thing, but I bought one of those little uh, whole, I call them toasters because it's just a little thing where you can sit the SSD in vertically and connect it to your Mac. And that is yeah. now my time machine backup. And it was, you know, 30 bucks and I can put two of them in there. So I'm tempted to get a second SSD that's, you know, maybe bigger uh, until I get the new iMac, of course, with lots more storage. But that's sort of my first line of defense. And then I have 
three other levels of local backup. One, and <laughs> I have, I know we're supposed to have offsite backup, and I did until the pandemic. My my offsite backup used to live in my desk at work, and so that was easy because I would just, you know, once a month or whatever, I would I would ship it home or I would ship it back to work in my bag. Uh, but now that I don't go anywhere. Uh, occasionally, I take it over to my mom's, and then I forget it's over there. And so, <laughs> I, my, the least, the least, is, the least attractive part of my backup scheme is the offsite backup. But I've been using Carbon Copy Cloner for all that, and I probably should invest in something like like Backblaze. And I, I, I feel like that is the the weakness is that I don't have like a, a professional offsite backup system. But I do have three levels of local backup because drives are cheap, and so that's kind of yeah. what I've done. No, I get it, but it's like fifty bucks a year, and honestly. I spend $50 a year on way dumber things than an offsite backup. <laughs> <laughs> right. I, I, it's not going to be too hard to convince me, especially when I get the, the Mac with the bigger internal drive. And then I'm like, wait, we need a new plan. And, and we have a giant movie server. It's, it's something my husband manages because it's on a Linux machine. Uh, and, and he does all the backup for that. But it's, it's this enormous, I think, six terabytes of movies and the likes. That's the main, and then and then the photos are also on the same machine. So that's like a our big uh, backup thing that he has to sort out. And I'm just trying to back up a couple of Macs. Now, if you ever want to get religion about backup, just make a tech podcast, and then you'll start getting email from people that like lose their entire dissertation because they failed to back it up. And yeah, and then all of a sudden, oh, I know terrible things can happen. I'm aware. And then suddenly you're just like you have suddenly you find yourself with like. And like I have like eight backups or something of my photos. I don't know how many I have, but it is a lot. And it, at this point, it becomes a a, a sickness. <laughs> but yeah, if if I lost that Plex server, I believe I would go into a major depression because it's it's I've spent years building that thing up with just all sorts of great old entertainment that I that I love and uh, I love it and I don't want it to go away. So. <laughs> Now you call yourself a born again time machine user. What does that mean? It means I never used time machine before I got this SSD and put it in this little box as an extra. And so now I just have a time machine backup running on my iMac. And it's not even that, you know, I, th- I think a lot of people probably do that as a matter of course. Yeah. For me, it was always use carbon copy cloner, have these scheduled backups once a week and rotate them. And I I, I continue to do that. But just this the newest thing I've done because the SSD itself was so inexpensive and because the little uh, toaster box that I put it in is also so expensive. And you, and most of them come with two slots, as mine does. And so it's really easy just if you get yourself an inexpensive SSD to just put it there, literally set it and forget it since it's completely quiet. Your life is being backed up while you sleep and you don't have to. There's absolutely no intervention required and it's been rock solid. Yeah, and I would argue you could even do it with an even cheaper spinning disk for for time machine. It does either way. It's like the barrier of entry is plugging it in and clicking one box. So yeah, I just my, my I have a bunch of old spinny disks, and I'm sort of trying to future proof myself with having something that's newer and less likely to to crap out. Yeah, Stephen, what's the biggest SSD you have running in that fancy Mac Pro these days? I haven't checked in with you on this in a while. I got to keep you honest. I mean the the Apple one is eight terabytes, but that's Oof. two four terabyte modules, which is also sure. the biggest individual SSD I have in there. So my Time yeah. Machine drive, which is twelve terabytes, that's a spinning hard drive. So I yeah. hear that sometimes, but yeah. uh, you know, it's always getting better year after year. That'll. I just, that'll I just do. want a picture of Stephen's face when he hears the spinning drive. Mount up. just yeah. the, kind of the. It's the like eyebrows. sadness, but also oh, my files are being backed up. So. 
Exactly. As long as the noise is consistent and and soothing, as opposed to wait, I've never heard that noise before. Then then click, you're all click, right. Click. Yeah. Well, we're all old enough to remember when you could actually interpret the sound of your computer. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. oh <laughs> no, I remember that. I. That's when I knew my last iMac was dying. My my previous iMac was a 2009 iMac with a spinny drive, and yeah, I heard weird sounds coming out of it. And I was like, oh, you know what? I think it's time. Yeah. <laughs> Or I could even hear back in the day, this is going to date myself, I could hear when my my disc needed to be defragged because the drive heads were so <laughs> yep. loud that you would hear them literally jumping around. You're like, oh, time to time to defrag. Yep. <laughs> I always enjoyed that. It was very satisfying to see the, oh, look, it's the, the little diagram that shows that it's defragmented. Just it made me feel good. I don't know how much good it actually did, but I felt much better. Oh, no, you could hear it after it was done. The, the drive head <laughs> stopped jumping. It was great. This episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you by The IntraZone, a podcast from our friends at Microsoft. It's great to find new shows to listen to, and The IntraZone is one you should consider. It's a biweekly podcast with conversations and interviews on how technologies like Microsoft SharePoint and OneDrive can work for you and your business. You'll hear from guest experts from behind the scenes and out in the field so you can see how SharePoint fits into your everyday work life to easily share and manage content, knowledge, and applications. Each episode covers a bunch of segments like news and announcements, a focused topic, guest perspectives, FAQs, and more. And the topics for each show are really interesting. Previous episodes cover migration to the cloud, crisis management and working remotely, and digging into the developer and end-user features of these technologies. This is a great show. If you have a bunch of documents laying around your business, a bunch of information that you need to get organized, the IntraZone can really help. There was a recent episode about just doing this very thing, migrating from this old, mostly offline kind of janky system to SharePoint, moving hundreds of thousands of points of data over really, really interesting stuff. So go and listen to it now. Just search for the IntraZone wherever you get your podcast. That's I-N-T-R-A-Z-O-N-E, or click the link in the show notes to go check it out. Our thanks to the IntraZone by Microsoft SharePoint for their support of the show and Relay FM. So, Shelly, um, this um, iOS 14 accessibility book you just did, I think it was, you said the eighth version of this? Yes. because you're so intentional with your tools, you got to tell us what what goes into making one of these and what are the apps and services you rely upon? So I should tell you very quickly that the first time I did this, I, I was under the impression, this is for iOS 7, I was under the impression that you could open up pages and build a beautiful document and export it into an EPUB format and that that would be a delightful book that it was complete and ready for the Apple Bookstore and for sales and EPUB. Not true. Not true at all. And so because Pages (laughs) let me down, and I realize it's improved over the years, but the fact that Pages let me down so completely was why I ended up going to a completely hand-built way to to make my book. And I should first say that I I chose EPUB as a format very intentionally. And for those who don't know, that's the default format that an Apple book is. It's EPUB. And that is also completely accessible. There's no way you can break accessibility in EPUB, which you can do in PDF and in other formats. And so that was kind of my first line of defense. I also knew that I could, with uh, style sheets, I could make the text look any way I wanted it to be. I could make it larger than average, which is what I ended up doing. And so I knew I wanted to do an EPUB book. And 
over the years, the tools have gotten somewhat better. But this is all by way of explaining why I still do it in a really hand-built way, because the thing that startled me when I opened up the pages book that I made initially was, again, how terrible the HTML code was. Because all an, all an EPUB book is, is a series of XHTML files and then some binding files that link everything together. And you to, to compile an EPUB book, you zip all those files together. And you before you zip them together, you, you verify that it meets all the EPUB standards. And so there's two ways to make a book like that. You either use something like Adobe InDesign or a dedicated EPUB editor. iBooks author would make an EPUB that was suitable for the bookstore. Or you do what I do, which is you make all those XHTML files by hand. You put the images in the right place. You edit the binder files. This is where BBEdit saves my life and makes sure. my life far better because it fixes all my sin. Oh, look, I forgot to close the LI. I forgot to close the paragraph. I, for, I forgot to uh, reference that image in the binder. And so the verifier is going to yell at me later on. It also is completely portable so that I can have it in iCloud and then whatever device I'm in, whether I'm in a, on, an, on a Mac or whether I'm on my iPad, I use a tool called Textastic, which is kind of the BB edit of iPad not in the sense of sophisticated file management, but in terms of code and, and giving you hints about where your syntax is broken. So having built the book that way years ago, I continue to update it based on, because all the, the, the fundamentals of the structure of the book are always the same. It's the same number of chapters. I mean, I change every couple of versions I change. Like when iPadOS became a thing, I made an iPadOS chapter, right? But otherwise it's structurally the same and I just add new material. And so... I, I build it in BB Edit. I use Brett Terpstra's Marked to preview it, which is delightful because I can have BB Edit working on one side. And then whenever I save, Marked updates it and I can see, oh, yeah, that heading looks the way I want it to. Or, oh, no, yeah. that caption doesn't look right. So that's as as complicated as a project like that is to build. Once you've done it, it's very comforting because you always know the status of what you've made. You know whether you've broken something or not. And so... That's that's my nerdy way of building books. Yeah, and with BB Edit, it is just a text file at the end of the day, so you can go through and control all the all of the formatting. It almost reminds me of the old days with the Word Perfect nerds, you know, where they wanted to control every tiny bit of their uh, their Word Perfect file. But that's what you get with BB Edit, you know. Right, and the multi file search is super important because I mean, one of the first things I do it's it's really basic, but I take the iOS. 13 version of the book, and I'm going to talk about iOS 14. So everywhere I replace iOS 13 with 14. Are there cases where that's not what I want to do? Yes, but those are easier to find that small number where I'm referring back to iOS 13. And I can do that with every single file, and it'll show me this is how many it replaced. It's super fast. If I were better at regular expressions, I could do a lot of things with regular expressions. That's one of these. It's that's on my to do list of things to learn is to just be good at regex, and I'm not. Uh, but I know BB Edit is the tool that would make that possible for me. And any time I change, say the the name or the position of a heading within the book because it's just an HTML tag, I just replace it everywhere, and it's not broken, and it's just it's it's just delightful. Yeah, can't say I, enough about BB Edit. I would say, I don't know how long it's been since you tried Pages, but, you know, in the intervening years, Apple has kind of given up on iBooks author. Yes. Um, they put more resources into the Pages EPUB, so it is not as noisy of an HTML export as it used to be. And um, it is actually pretty useful now, as long as you have a fairly simple EPUB. But uh, I think for the stuff you're doing, you probably need to stick right where you're at. 
Well, and because I have access to InDesign, that was my next try. And the thing that I probably would do if I switched away from it, and I actually did try and build some things in InDesign, but what I realized is I can do basic InDesign stuff, but the amount of time I would have to spend learning to do all the topography stuff in InDesign that I would want to do if I had access to it could be better spent writing. And so I I made the choice to do that because InDesign is what pros typically use for EPUB because they're building it as a as a desktop publishing type document. They're building it as a book and then they can export it out into EPUB or into PDF or any number of formats. And as I say, there's a lot of typography control. There's a lot of good styling available, which is super helpful because I have, you know, it's it's my my layout is for is very simple, but I'm have very specific structures that I want to maintain in terms of you know, how images look relative to the captions and that sort of things and thing. And so if I were starting from scratch, I probably would would go in design. But I feel like I'm so far down the road now that I'm just not going to get off that train. And, and your books are teaching accessibility on iPhone and iPad. So necessarily, there's going to be a lot of screenshots. Um, how do you manage that? Well, so there's two answers to the question. The first question is the first answer is philosophical because yes, there's a lot of screenshots. Keep in mind that a huge audience for this book is folks who are blind and visually impaired. So they're either not going to be able to use screenshots or they're going to use screenshots maybe differently. And sure. I like to keep them large and I like to keep them fairly simple and and not use too many and not rely on a screenshot to provide information that isn't also in text. So a screenshot is literally just an illustration. It's not look at figure four to see how to do this thing. It's like, here's the 10 steps it's going to take. Now here's how it should look when you're done with figure four. The practical question is I'm generating screenshots in iOS. I am then using a custom shortcut to frame them. It's based on, there, there are several framing shortcuts out there. And I know Federico Vitici has made these delightful, which is the first place I ever heard of them. And I think the first time I did the book, I used his framing shortcut. But now there are a few others out there. And not all of the iOS devices were supported. For a while, there was not a 10R framing shortcut in his in his set because Apple hadn't produced the images that were necessary in order to make them possible. It wasn't his fault. Yeah. But what I use is the, a shortcut that will put a frame around, whether it's an iPhone frame or an iPad Pro frame, uh, and then I export them out into a certain folder uh, using files. Then when they get on the Mac, I put them in graphics converter and I dump them down to the resolution and to the size that I need them to be. So so again, a lot of that stuff is automated. And the number of screenshots I have to clean up off of my various devices when I'm done with the book is is amazing. It's just like, oh my God, I didn't know you could take that many screenshots. <laughs> uh, yeah, when I do the field guide videos, because I have several visually impaired customers and they they write me if I don't because I need to be very clear and explain what I'm doing because they may not be able to see the screen, and um, I, I've gotten a lot better at it over the years because of their their support. But you know that's something you have to think about when you're putting stuff like this together, and um, and it also makes it a better product for everyone else too. Honestly, well, the basics in an EPUB or in any uh, printed or online book is that you absolutely need to have alt text which is just in general, if you're doing something with HTML and images, you always want alt text to describe what that image is. And because in a lot of cases, and, and, and people say, and they say this completely wrongly, that the more decorative an image is, the less need there is for alt text. But that's not true at all, because if you're blind and you come across an image and it's not described in any way, even if it's just a decorative little border or something like that, you have no idea what you're missing. 
But yeah. if there is an image that has a caption that says, here's a picture of David walking his dog, and that's the caption that everybody can read, it's a little less important that you put alt text in there. But that's sure. it's just good practice. And, and think of building a book in EPUB or PDF as just another HTML page where you would want to put alt text in there so that the most people can read what your understand what your image is. Well, you are doing amazing work getting this thing out. Version eight is out. I'm sure that next year there'll be a version nine when Apple makes some more updates. And we look forward to seeing that. If, if Apple makes this a new operating system, I'll make a new book. I suspect they probably will. I was going to ask you about that. What went into the decision to, to, not, to not just publish the book the first time, but to have an update each and every year? Well, the problem that I was trying to solve when I started doing the book was, and, and this was in, I got the idea in 2012. My first book came out in 2014. But there were already a lot of old accessibility resources on the internet. So when you would go and look up how to use iOS with voiceover or with uh, the low vision tools or hearing impaired uh, focus tools, there was either no information or it was very old. And so it became clear to me that if I was going to have any credibility, I was going to have to continue to update you know, each time Apple created a new version of the operating system. And there's a lot that doesn't change. And some years, nothing changes. I mean, some years, very little changes. And the basic functions of the accessibility tools remain the same. But Apple, as you very well know, likes to move things around. They like to rename things a little bit. They like to add a small feature, but change its function in such a way that it would be confusing if you were reading, you know, an old book. And frankly, there were a couple of other folks in the market that were just starting to write about voiceover specifically, which is the screen reader for iOS. And, and they were doing yearly updates. So I felt like I needed to do that as well. But then I extended the idea of writing about accessibility to cover things that nobody was covering, which is switch control and the low vision tools and tools for folks with hearing impairments and with cognitive disabilities. And so at that point, when I started claiming that I was comprehensive, I also had to be up to date. Right. <laughs> A, a a pet issue for me um, is voice to text. You know, I really like to dictate. How do you? How's Apple doing, in your opinion, on that these days? Pretty good. I mean, I don't dictate long documents by any means. I dictate a lot of text messages. I dictate emails, even, and it kind of requires a little patience sometimes, or just being in an environment where it's quiet. Which, again, being at home. Uh, it's less of a it's less of a situation. If I were you know at my desk working, I would probably be dictating less. But I'm not dictating documents. When I'm writing posts for the web, I prefer to type. I'm just used to it. Uh, sure. I think they're doing pretty well. Also, something that you you may not be aware is that part of the voice control feature, which is a tool for folks who can't uh, touch the screen or can't touch it as uh, can't touch it completely, is that so voice control will let you communicate with the computer just the phone just by speaking to it part of that includes text editing and you can dictate text and then you can use your voice to edit the dictation that you've just done which in the 1.0 version when they put that in iOS 13 worked amazingly well it was one of the best 1.0 implementations i'd ever seen so just as an example if i write the sentence the quick brown fox jumped over the lazy dog and then i want to change it to jumped over the extremely active, attractive dog. I would tell it where I wanted to start the edit before that the words that I wanted to delete. I'd tell it to delete the words, and then I would add the words I wanted to replace it with. And it's almost instantaneous. It's really amazing. So if you, if you want to do dictation, but you also want to be able to edit, jumping into voice control is 
really, in my opinion, a great experience. Yeah, and it, and it has macros, custom dictionary, and I mean, there's just a whole bunch to to like about that. It feels to me, and they did implement it with almost an identical control set to Dragon Dictate. So um, obviously, they knew where people were coming from with learning those commands. But I could talk to you for an hour about voice to text because that's something that is just something that uh, I like to use a lot. Um, but either way, uh, Shelly, every time we have someone on the show, we like to get a few of their favorite apps and services towards the end of the interview. Someone out there listening may find something new today because of something that you like. So why don't you share some of your favorite apps and services with us? Sure thing. Well, a few of these are related to my use of accessibility and a few are not. So my first one and one that I always, always recommend is an app called Voice Dream Reader by a guy named Winston Chin. And what that does is basically read aloud to you and you can import any kind of file into Voice Dream Reader. You can even import audio files if you want to, if you like the interface. It has a concept of playlists so it can just continue to read things to you or you can send it stuff from a read it later service like pocket or instapaper so i love to read long form articles love it i mean i i'm always reading on the web and i actually do read all that stuff i save to pocket and so my workflow is when i find something on the web on the mac or on ios i save it to pocket and i know pocket has its own reader but i like voice stream better because i know it will continue it'll read continuously and it has a voice i like so pocket sends whatever i've put in it to voice stream reader and then voice stream reader allows me to read it aloud i can set the voice i want i can set the pace i can set the visual look of voice stream reader with highlights and what i like about it as somebody who's not a, a voiceover uh, user and somebody who wants to walk around with my devices is i can put my phone in my pocket and voice stream reader will, will keep reading i can use other applications while voice stream reader is doing its thing it's such a great app love 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 it if you have any interest in consuming uh articles or text by audio. I've even put my book in Voice Stream Reader. And the fun thing is it'll tell you how long it's going to take to read whatever it is you put in there. And it says something like my book will take nine hours. I think it's up to that. So I just like knowing that. Yeah, you, should, you should put it in there with the HTML. So it'll just read like, open bracket <laughs> yeah, HTML. Sure. Nobody wants that, David. <laughs> I, I will second the nomination of Voice Stream Reader. I am also a pretty much daily user of the application. The thing I find is there are no better voices for any other app to read things to you. And the built-in voices Apple has, or the voices that you get from some of these other apps just aren't there. And this one, you can find the exact voice you want. You, you can buy the voices if you want, so you can get more. Another one uh, that folks might not know about, but that I talk about a lot is an app from Microsoft, interestingly enough, called Seeing AI. And Seeing AI does... A bunch of things. There are several channels. Uh, one channel will tell you the color of something you're pointed at. It'll, and this, this is all done via speech. So if I point it at my shirt, it'll say blue shirt. Another tool will identify currency. Another tool will is, is called scene and you can point it at a room. And this is something similar to what Apple's iOS 14 description feature will do, but it's kind of a little more advanced actually. And it'll say, Hardwood floor, chair, coffee table. It'll, it'll identify the contents of a room. And, it you know, sometimes it's better than others. Uh, there's an, a module called short text. I'm not introducing these in the order that they are useful because things like short text are probably among the most useful. So, for example, if you're a blind person or a visually impaired person and you have a, a label that you need to read, what's this can? What's in this can? You can sure. hold seeing AI up to it and it'll say chicken noodle soup. Or it'll read the recipe on the back of the box to tell you how to cook something. 
So short text is great. Uh, it has this incredible uh, feature where it, <laughs> this is a party trick I always do. If you point it at a person, it will try and identify that person by characteristics. Like it will say, 47-year-old man looking happy. And (laughs) it's a great party trick. And when I first got this, I I took it to the office and I showed it to our team. And because I knew it was going to do this uh, sort of age guessing thing, I made sure to point it at our very young interns. So (laughs) 21-year-old woman looking pleased. (laughs) Say party trick. What's wrong, Stephen? Microsoft AI thinks you're sad today. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Seeing AI is a great app. They also, uh, with the the LiDAR sensor that's built into the higher-end iPhone 12s and the the 12 Pro Max and the 12 Pro, as well as the 2020 iPad Pros, uh, seeing AI has taken advantage of the the LiDAR sensor to add a little bit on to the people detection feature that that Apple provides. And uh, seeing AI will tell you how far you are away from an object. It will attempt to identify that object. It's it's really fun. So they were very quick to adapt LiDAR features to what seeing AI could do. And and, and the team that does that, it started as a Skunk Works project within Microsoft. And I actually know the guy who built it from way before he was even at Microsoft. And it's such a great story where he he joins Microsoft, he's he's programming, he's doing code. And at some point they have this competition, a hackathon basically. And he says, let's do this thing. And they adopted, and it's been at the main stage of Microsoft Build. and, And he's just gotten all sorts of support from the company. It's a free app to continue to build build this app for iOS. And it's it's really a good app. Good on Microsoft. Yeah, absolutely. It, you know, it's amazing how many tools that, you know, folks used to have to carry around that the iPhone can now do so many, much of that for them, you know. Yes. Like currency and all that. Yeah, they used to, there used to be these little currency readers that the, actually the, the United States Treasury uh, bought and would distribute a bunch of these things. I've been to accessibility conferences where somebody from the Treasury would hand out these little currency readers. And now you don't even have to do that anymore. You just use seeing AI if you want to. I noticed a uh, another Microsoft on your list here, uh, Outlook for iOS. Crazy, uh, huh? I know. Well, I know. I know some people really like it. I'd love to hear how you're using it. Well, I'll tell you. And this is this is not for me. This is for my mother, who mom has had some challenges. She her her only computing device is an iPad. She's older. She has age-related macular degeneration, and so she needs larger text. And she's also not a particularly savvy tech user. And she found some of the changes that Apple has made in mail in the past couple of versions on iOS challenging for her. The sort of cards and the overlays and the various things that that mail does are challenging for her. And so I was like, all right, I'll find you another mail client. There's lots of mail clients. And so I downloaded half a dozen mail clients and popped her account into them. And Unfortunately, a thing that Mail does that's very important for her is it supports dynamic type. That's an accessibility feature that upsizes text relative to normal text. It's that the the, the, liter- the size of it is based on whatever the developer provides, uh, but a lot of apps do not support it. And Outlook is the other Mail client besides Apple Mail that supports it. And had it been a bad app, I wouldn't have recommended it. And I would have said, I'm sorry, you're stuck with mail. But as it happens, for somebody who wants a simple, streamlined mail client that also supports dynamic type, Outlook is your go-to. And from my experience, it's pretty fast. It's pretty easy to understand. There are some more advanced features. There's a thing called a focused mailbox that you can turn off or on. I turned it off for her. But, you know, organizational tools like that all seem to be optional so you can sort of streamline it or you can make it as sophisticated as you want it to be 
Yeah, I mean, we every time we talk about email, we hear from at least somebody who is very happy with Outlook. And I, uh, you know, good on the Microsoft. It's not really the historical Outlook that you know it, it had such a bad reputation on the Mac for so long because, um, and this goes kind of back into the old days. But the way they stored data originally on the Outlook version for Mac was bad because if there was an error, you'd lose the whole database. Yep. I'm not a fan fan of it even today on the Mac because I I was given that as a default when I got to the radio station and I immediately jumped out of it and went to Apple Mail. I'm not not a fan because it has the too many ribbon bars and toolbars and it's just it's more complicated mm-hmm. than it needs to be. Yeah, and Outlook on iOS started life as more than one third party app that Microsoft has right. bought and and put together and and I think like the rest of the Office app is really pretty good on iOS. I see one more on here that I'm also a fan of. Tell us about Paprika. Paprika is a recipe app. Of course, there are a lot of these around, but it has the advantage of working on both Mac and iOS. And when I'm in my kitchen, I have an iPad next to me helping me cook. And Paprika is great not only for storing the recipes that you have. I dumped all of mine out of Evernote and put them into Paprika several years ago. But it's also great if you want to find more recipes because it has its own browser and it has links to a lot of popular recipe sites. And then what's really fancy is that once you get to the site where you find the perfect shrimp creole recipe, you can download it back into Paprika and save it. And that is so great. It'll come along with a picture and a link and whatever information that uh, that recipe has. It'll divide it into ingredients and instructions, headings, just like anything else that you'd see in Paprika. So it's just such a smart recipe manager that I, I love being able to carry it from literally from room to room in my house. It's got timers. It's got grocery lists. It's just it's it's just a great little recipe manager. Yeah, I second that one, too. I think it's great. And that's the one I use, too. Well, Shelly, I am always impressed with how many balls you manage to keep in the air. It's crazy. Radio host, website master, book author. I mean, how do you do it all, Shelly? Very carefully. Uh, <laughs> I I get nervous if I don't have anything to do. I guess is is the thing. So you know, I'm I'm always. But 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 we're all we're all multitasking. Just some of sometimes it's sometimes I'm showing off. Sometimes I'm not. <laughs> Hey, well, you're better at it than I am because I can't multiplay tasks for my life. Um, either way, uh, w- where can folks find you? So my home on the internet is brisbane.net, B-R-I-S-B-I-N.net. You can follow me at Shelly on Twitter. I like to keep things simple, and I got in a long time ago. Uh, my other uh, work can be found from that site uh, quickly right here on Relay FM. I do Parallel, so that's relay.fm slash Parallel. Tell us a little bit about that podcast sure. for folks who haven't seen it. So Parallel is a tech podcast because we're right here on Relay. Hello. What I like to do is bring together people from the mainstream technology world and the accessibility technology world. And they are two separate worlds, sadly, that rarely communicate. And so we talk about general interest tech, but we sort of ladle in an accessibility perspective. And sometimes that's a little bit of accessibility on top. And sometimes it's a primary focus of the episode. And so... Uh, just bringing folks together that wouldn't necessarily get a chance to talk to each other is what that show is all about. Well, it's excellent, and I would I would recommend it. We are the Mac Power Users. You can find us over at relay.fm slash MPU. Thank you to our sponsors today. That's Smile, DevonThink, SaneBox, and Microsoft. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>